Please stand for the second reading of God's Holy Word this morning, drawn from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and beginning at verse 15. We have just heard of the account of the lame man at the, uh, the pool of Bethsaida. We take up in verse 15. Then the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judged is no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Gospel of our Lord. And please be seated. Every semester, I run my students through the Wesleyan quadrilateral of authorities, which I've addressed a number of times. You know what that is. Uh, There's usually a handful of students who will say, uh, Scripture is my highest authority. It's it's never been the majority. It's usually just a trickle. In a class of maybe 16 students, two of them will say it. This semester, not one of them said it. However, this semester I have more claimed Christianity than I have in most of my other classes. About a third of my students claim to be very active in their church, to be Christian. Not a one of them, however, claimed that the Bible was their highest authority. That's troubling. I have one young man who uh, is not only active in his church, he's a leader. He is the sound system operator for a a fairly sizable evangelical church. He runs the music. Uh, And he's taken to me every semester. I have two or three students that kind of become the professor's groupie, and he's one of them. Uh, And we've, we've talked after class, and we've had some very interesting discussions. Most recently, he was telling me about being, quote, run out of another church that he had been part of. Uh, he got into an argument with the pastor of the church over the nature of Christ, although he didn't use that term. I don't know if he's thinking that deeply. But he said, you know, I was in that church, and I told that pastor. Now, um, 
I don't think God and Jesus are the same person. I think they're, I think they're different people. The, Jesus isn't God, I'm, I'm quoting. Uh, and the pastor got so mad at me, well, he, he threw his Bible at me, just threw it on the ground because he was so mad. An interesting exchange, really. I was very tempted to tell him, well, how it worked out doesn't matter one iota to me, but I doubt he would have gotten the uh, theological joke. I wonder if you do. Have you ever heard anyone say, well, that doesn't matter one iota? Ever heard the phrase? Uh, what does it mean and where does it come from? I don't care one iota. Anybody know the history of that? If you do, just, okay. I was going to say, you know, but anybody else besides, besides the pastor's wife? Uh, it comes out of church history, and it comes out of early church history. Uh, the earliest of churches debated effectively what this young man and his pastor were debating, and the earliest of churches would have had a very hard time understanding not only what the young man was saying, they would see that probably as errant, but they also would have a hard time with the pastor who could not help the young man and would have found their language very strange regardless. Now, I don't think Jesus and God are the same person. Is he right or is he wrong? Show of hands of those who think that he is wrong. Okay, so I have to assume that you all think he's right. Yes or no? Exactly, that comes right out of the Gospel of John. Uh, he probably is not thinking as deeply as his words reflect, but when he uses the term Jesus and God are not the same person, he's muddling a number of theological things together, and he didn't really understand them. It is true that Jesus Christ of Nazareth and God the Father are not, biblically speaking, the same person. They are, however, both the one true God. And from what I could gather from the conversation was, neither speaker would have been able to put that in words. Not the student, but not the pastor either. The pastor firmly believed Jesus Christ is the same person as God the Father, which most uh, evangelicals would probably tell you that. Is Jesus Christ God the Father? Oh yeah, I mean, I believe in the divinity of Jesus, so Jesus is God the Father. That's not biblically true, but Jesus is God, and not only is Jesus God, and not only is the Father God, but both of them are fully God. Jesus is not part of the Godhead. The Godhead fills him bodily. He is fully the Godhead, but the Father is also fully the Godhead, and yet they are two different persons. 
Now, you may be wondering, did he just jump over that, that IOTA stuff? Well, no. Um, the issue was around, really, the first part of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In chapter 1 of John, we read, In the beginning was the Word. And when we get to verse 18, we'll see that the Word is referencing Jesus. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So in those simple words, you have a couple things that stand out. The Word was with God. So if something is with something else, there is a distinction between the two. The Word and God, the Word was with God, so there's a separation. But then John says, next, the Word was God. And then he goes further in this and takes the phrase, the Word, and says he was in the beginning with God. So there was a he, a person, who was both separate from God and and was God as well, Uh, The early church wrestled with that. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? What is his nature? Well, it all came down to one iota. In the Greek language, there are two words. There is homoousios and homoiousios. And the difference between the two words is one letter, an I or an iota, as it's said in Greek. And what the believing church came to on the basis of Scripture was, Jesus Christ was homoousios. That is, he is of the same essence as the Father. You add one iota and you get Instead of the same essence, you get similar essence. Jesus Christ is very similar to God, but is not God. And the early church rejected that. The early church said, that's not true. He is homoousios. It it makes one iota difference. But Jesus is of the essence of God. He is not like God. He is God but he is a different person than God the Father. And so this understanding of who God is comes down to us, and neither my student nor his pastor could have put that into words. You can still see what looks like uh, some archaeological evidence of that debate in your English Bibles. Here in New Hope Reformed Church, we read out of several different versions. I preach out of the New King James Version. A number of you read the King James Version. A number of you read the English Standard Version. A few of you read the NASB. In the King James and in the New King James, if you turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, I believe... This is how it reads in the King James and New King James. 
And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. That reading is based off of the grand majority of ancient texts that we have. The mystery of godliness, what is it? Well, God was manifested in the flesh. So if you're looking to know what godliness is like, God has provided that answer because he himself has shown it to you in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. If you have an ESV or a NASB, they base their reading off of a small, small number of, of manuscripts. Um, but this is the reading. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, and though on. The difference is one word. It changes God to he, and in so doing, changes homo usios to humoi usios in content. In the small amount of readings that did make it into those translations, it is not God that's manifest, it is godliness manifested in a person uh, the change seems to be made by someone who read the scripture and said, uh, Jesus of Nazareth can't be God. He's a man. Uh, he is fully godliness, though. When you look at him, you, you're looking at godliness. So it can't read that God was manifest in the flesh. We'll change it to he so that people understand that if you want to know what godliness is, you look at Jesus of Nazareth, but he's not necessarily God. That's not what Paul wrote when he wrote 1 Timothy. That's what somebody who did not believe that Jesus could be both man and God changed the text to so that the text didn't have to definitively say that. And the early church didn't really carry it down. It's just in a small number of manuscripts. But you can see that debate taking place right there. Um... Of all things, one of the more paraphrastic of translations gets right what John is actually saying in the first two verses of the gospel. It's the New English Bible, and it puts it this way. When all things began, the Word already was. The Word dwelt with God, and... What God was, the Word was. The Word, then, was with God at the beginning. It's the idea of substance. There is one essence, one thing that you can call God, and Jesus fully and completely makes it up, and God the Father completely and fully makes it up, but they are two different persons, but they are the one God. And so the New English Bible actually gets at it better than any translation I've ever seen, which is really odd because generally it's not that great of a translation. 
but Jesus is fully God, the Father is fully God, what does that matter? Well, we confess what it matters when we confess our faith in the Heidelberg Catechism. Listen to what we confess about Jesus being both man and God. I'm going to walk through Lord's Day 5 and 6. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. How may we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? Does that sound like something significant? We deserve both temporal and eternal punishment. We would rather avoid that. How do we avoid that? Answer, God wills that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full satisfaction to that justice, either by ourselves or by another. Question, can we ourselves make this satisfaction? Answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our guilt. So, that's a problem. We can't make this satisfaction, and every day we dig the hole deeper. Can any mere creature make satisfaction for us? Answer, none. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and redeem others from it. So God is just, just like we saw in the Old Testament reading. He is not willing to overlook sin at all. God will punish every sin. There is no sin that God just writes off. When God forgives sins, it's not a matter of God saying, eh, that didn't matter. God is just, and he will punish every single sin ever committed in time and space. Uh, we kind of need somebody to step into the gap for that, so... What kind of mediator and redeemer, then, must we seek? Answer, one who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also God. Why must he be a true and righteous man? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. Makes sense. Human beings commit sin. Bulls don't. Cats don't. Uh, inanimate objects don't. Uh, sin is uniquely a human experience, and God is just. He's going to punish human nature for what human nature has done. Why must he also be true God? Answer, that by the power of his Godhead, he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath, and so attain for and restore to us righteousness and life. So we started with a problem. There's the answer to it. Uh, he is both God and man, and he can't redeem us if he is not both. But who now is that Redeemer? who in one person is true God and also a true and righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is freely given to us for complete redemption and righteousness. So it matters greatly that Jesus Christ is fully God, 
It also matters greatly that he's fully man. He is not the Father, but both of them are fully God, and they are not part of God. They are different persons in the Godhead. They are different persons in the one true God. My student doesn't understand that, and I'm looking forward to when we get in class up to going through uh, the Apostles' Nicene and Athanasian Creed. I hope that I can do a better job of explaining to him what that means than his pastor, who also doesn't really understand that. He understands that Jesus redeems, Jesus is God, but uh, he would say Jesus and the Father are the same person, and that's simply not true. The God we serve is three persons and one God. Uh, In our passage today, we are looking at Uh, Effectively, what could be considered introductory articles to this very long uh, statement by Christ concerning what sort of implications it is that he and the Father are one. That's going to be a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus begins to talk about what it means that he and the Father are one. And his audience can't miss the fact that he has claimed to be fully divine. That's why from this moment on, they're going to hate him and and want to kill him. Because he has clearly said he and the Father are one. And uh, that enrages them. Well, Christ begins by talking about what that means practically. And as you walk through this first little section of his response, you end up with uh, five separate things that Christ said has to be true if he and the Father are, in fact, one God. Uh, The first is in verse 19. What the Father does, so does the Son. Jesus says, my Father has been working from the moment creation was done. The scripture says that God ceased working on the seventh day. That does not mean that the Father stopped doing anything. But effectively, the Jewish church kind of defined it that way without really thinking about what that would mean. What would it be like if God the Father stopped working at all? What would reality be like this very moment if God weren't doing anything? Would reality be like the deists who say, God is watching us from a distance, but he's not really doing anything? Would reality continue, would life continue if God were not doing anything at this moment? The biblical evidence seems to be that God gives life, God sustains life, God determines when life comes to an end, and in fact, God is actively holding all of reality together. Why are you having your next heartbeat? Well, it's because God wills it so. 
why do things happen at all? It is because God is at work. When the Bible says God the Father stopped working, it's referring to his working on creating creation. There is no more reality being added to reality. On the seventh day, God rested, and even science will tell you um, there is no new matter or light or energy that is coming into existence. Creation is a closed subset. Nothing's being added to it. But if God the Father stopped working, we would cease to exist. Nothing would adhere. And Christ says, my Father is working this very moment... Um, and because I am what he is, I do what he does. So I'm working too, and it turns out that the Father even works on the Sabbath day. So I'm doing the same thing. What does that mean? Well, it means that whatever God the Father wills to do, so the Son wills to do it too. The Father and the Son are not at odds in any way. They both have the same desires. They also have the same power. If Jesus says, what my Father does, I also do, that means that he has to have the same power as the Father to do it. And so if you understand that God the Father is almighty, Jesus of Nazareth is claiming almighty status because he can't do what the Father does unless he's able to. Uh, And he also has to have the same knowledge and wisdom of the Father because he can't will what the Father wills unless he knows what the Father knows. He can't do the work of the Father if he doesn't know how to do it. So in one verse, our Lord Christ says... Uh, the will, the knowledge, the, the power of the Father, I possess it. So uh, that's fairly significant, especially when you get to the end of the Gospels where Jesus will say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That would be a terrifying statement if he were not the God he says he is in verse 19, But he is. He has God's will, he has God's power, he has God's knowledge. And so all authority being given to him is a good thing, because he is equal to the Father. Secondly, going into verse 20, there is full love and communication between the Father and the Son. Jesus says, the Father shows me everything he's doing, He doesn't hide anything from me. He talks to me, and I know absolutely everything about the Father. Contrast that with how human beings are in this world. One of the most uh, quoted passages in all the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. It celebrates love. It's called the love passage. But it has quite a lot to do with knowledge. Verse 9 there says, speaking of us, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Jumping further down to uh, verse 12, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Uh, What has Paul just said? He said, I don't know everything God is doing or willing. Uh, I see through a glass darkly. Uh, Did you know, by the way, that up until the middle of the 1800s, in this country, if you witnessed a crime through a window, your testimony was not admissible in court. The reason for that was windows had not been made that were as nice and opaque as we have them. Uh, You only saw through a window a very distorted image. And so if you're going to testify in court, uh, you're going to have to admit, well, I didn't see all the details. And so in America, you couldn't actually go to court and testify because you saw through a mirror dimly. Well, Paul says that's the way all humanity is, you and me. But Jesus says of himself in verse 20, that's not true of him. The Father actually comes and communicates to him all things. Uh, There's nothing hid from him. The Father doesn't hide anything. He's more active in sharing with Christ all things. Number three, in verse 21... Uh, Jesus moves to one of the most significant things that God does, especially in our case. He moves to the raising of the dead, and he says in verse 21 of himself these words, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. In our catechism, we ask the question, since we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, since we are effectively as good as dead because we are waiting for the judgment day to be sent into eternal death, uh, what can we do to receive fellowship with God again? Well, in verse 21, Jesus says, you know, the Father has the power to raise the dead. I have the power to to raise the dead. And in fact, in the next verse, he talks about judgment. It is clearly spiritual death that is at least incorporated into what he's talking about. And he says, I can deliver man from judgment. It is not just my father. I have the power to do that. Um, Is he talking about in this world, or is he talking about the judgment day? Well, the answer is yes. If you go to Matthew 25, Jesus will be talking about himself, and he pictures himself on God's throne, separating the sheep from the goats. That's obviously a picture of judgment day. But through his apostle in Ephesians chapter 2, this is what he describes by his Holy Spirit. Talking to Christians, we read, and you he made alive. Jesus said, I can raise the dead. Well, Paul is using that language, talking to Christians at Ephesus, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he goes further on, but um, Jesus says, I can bring life to the dead. And he's talking about Judgment Day, but he's also talking about this very day right now. And he places both of them in light of God's judgment. Uh, Earlier this week, I was wondering what had happened to an old friend who had unfortunately uh, walked away from being part of a Reformed church. She had gotten involved in the Bernie Sanders stuff. She wanted free stuff. And she ended up leaving a covenant in her church over it. And I was just kind of wondering whatever happened to her. So we actually looked her up again. And we found her on Facebook. And this former covenanter, this former very conservative Reformed Christian, now had a Facebook page filled with Planned Parenthood propaganda, uh, very, very hostile to the Christian faith, uh, very, very dark, borders on demonic. Uh, how did she go from being in a covenant or church to being this, this thing that we read? Well, Jesus says, I can give life to the dead. The judgment is in my hand. Uh, it's not just on the last day when Christ sits on the throne and says, okay, you're, you're a goat go to hell. In this very world, when someone falls into the dark abyss like that, that's actually Christ's judgment happening. When Christ chooses to not be gracious and to leave someone in their sins, when they fall into this dark depravity, you're not seeing man succeed in overcoming God. You're watching Christ judge and not show mercy and grace to this person. You are watching God's sovereign hand separate them before Judgment Day in this world. And Jesus says, just like my Father can do that, I do that. And at the end of this verse, he even says, what is the basis for this? It's according to my will. Listen again to the verse. Uh, Don't just take my word for it. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So the locus of this life-giving, the locus of this judgment, is actually on the basis of the will of Christ. Is everyone delivered from their sins? Well, no. Can Christ deliver everyone from their sins? Absolutely, yes. Why doesn't it happen? Well, it's based on the will of God, 
and Jesus Christ is fully God, what his Father does, he does, it is based on the will of Christ. It is in his hand. It is according to his will. Um, we've already looked at the fourth, which is that Christ lays hold of Judgment Day, so I'll jump to the, to the fifth. The Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. Our last verse was, All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus cannot make his oneness with the Father any more explicit than that. Is the Father to be honored with worship? Well, we are to honor the Son exactly like the Father. Is the Father to be seen as the basis for your life and continued existence? Yes, well, the Son is to be honored just like that. Anything you would give to the Father, you are to give to the Son, and that is the will of the Father. There is no stronger way of saying, I am of essence divine, than to say that. And he says that those who don't honor the Son don't honor the Father. What are the implications of that? In these later days, where the bride of Christ finds herself in a culture war, it is greatly tempting to reach out to any possible ally we could have. Uh, The world is falling apart around us. Uh, Christ called us to be salt, light, and leaven. The corruption is going way faster than sanctification. Uh, Like the army says, God loves those who have bigger battalions. So we reach across the aisle and we seek any ally we can find, and we look to co-religionists who would agree with us on moral issues, and we say, let us stand together. We reach out to... Orthodox Jews, we reach out to Jehovah's Witnesses, we reach out to Mormons, we will even reach out to Muslims. Let us stand together so that you can help us be salt, light, and leaven in Christ. It comes out in phrases like the Judeo-Christian heritage. Uh, It comes out in overtures that say, Anyone who holds to the same morality as Christians, well, we can walk in lockstep. The scriptures don't know anything about that. The scriptures say those who don't honor the Son don't honor the Father. That is a direct statement against those who, again quoting the scripture, call themselves Jews and are not. Uh, There's nothing in Scripture that says lock arms with people who dishonored the Son. Um, All of those people that I mentioned dishonor the Son. Mormons hold Jesus as a God and not as a man effectively. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses honor him as godliness but not God. Uh, Muslims routinely blaspheme Christ... um, Yet we would reach out and we would embrace them for the sake of tactics 
Yet the Bible says if you dishonor the Son, you don't honor the Father. There is no doing wickedness that righteousness shall proceed. And that is effectively where we are. We have again and again and again attempted to build big coalitions when God is saying, you have too many men here, send everybody home but 300. And the issue is the son. Do they hold the son as God? Do they hold the son as man? Do they honor him as he truly is? Those are the only people we can really link arms with, and they is us. If somebody embraces Jesus of Nazareth as fully God and fully man and honors him by putting their full trust in him, he's you. It's the Christian church. But outside of that, there is no one who is honoring the Son. And the Father will not be honored by anyone who doesn't honor the Son. These Jews that he's talking to know what he's saying. And they show hostility to him because really, uh, why do they show hostility to him? Well, he is the, the same thing as the Father, and they don't like what they're seeing. Anyone who hates Jesus of Nazareth hates God. Because what the Father is, the Son is. What the Father wills, the Son wills. What the Son is doing, the Father is doing. And if you hate Jesus, you hate the Father. And there is no, no fellowship light can have with darkness. There is no embracing the temple of God and the idols of Baal. Uh, Jesus is making a very clear distinction, making himself the reason for the distinction, and they get it. They get it far better than many moderns who want to make Christ just a man, just godliness, just a good teacher. They understand what he's saying. And he is fully, fully divine Or he is, in fact, a liar and a monster, and you would be right to hate him. But these kind of words don't leave us in the dark concerning who he is. The early church said Jesus is the same thing as the Father, but a different person. He is of the essence of the Godhead. Jesus can't say these things if that's not true. I hope and pray that if someone comes to you muddle-headed on this issue, you would not be like this young man's pastor who demonstrated he was just as muddle-headed. I would hope that your children, if they came to you and asked these questions, uh, you would understand the gravity of what this means. Usually, when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity or the nature of Christ, we kind of set our eyes and we, we fade back because it's going to be an academic discussion with big words like homoousios and homoousios. But Jesus is actually making the distinction of heaven and hell based on who you think he is. And he claims to be divine.
it can't be missed.